0: Welcome to episode 50 of the RSA Resident and Student podcast series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine, Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible, collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Dr. Jessica Fujimoto, a chief resident at Temple University and vice president of RSA, speaks with Dr. Megan Healy, a past board member of AEM, active on the AEM Women in Emergency Medicine Committee, and former chair of the Marketing Task Force in charge of the AEM logo and website redesigns. Today, Drs. Fujimoto and Healy discuss unconscious bias and patient care.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the AAM RSA podcast. I'm Jessica Fujimoto. I'm one of the chief residents at Temple University Hospital. I'm also the vice president of the RSA board. Here with me today, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Megan Healy, who's an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Temple and also an assistant program director at the Temple Emergency Medicine Residency Program. And we're lucky to have her because she's one of the AEM board members. So welcome, Dr. Healy. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. So last year at AAM you gave a talk on gender conscious practice. I thought that was something that we should talk about today. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in gender conscious practice? Sure. So I was
2: a young attending new grad just coming out of residency when one of my strong female mentors invited me to be a part of a consensus conference on gender specific research in emergency medicine that was set to the task of coming up with the research questions that our community should be focused on going into the next 10 to 20 years. And the specific theme of the conference was uh, gender-specific medicine. So I was involved with the stroke component of that and going to the consensus conference and talking to the experts from all different areas, from cardiovascular to trauma research to stroke and neurologic emergencies, as we laid out the agenda of of what we know about gender-specific medicine and what we still have left to to understand, became really interested in the topic and how the different anatomy and physiology of women plays out in the disease processes that we see and how it might impact how I care for them every day in the emergency department.
1: That's really interesting. Yeah, women are obviously a big population of who we treat in the emergency department and it's it's something that I didn't think about as I like enter a shift day-to-day, so that's interesting to think about. What are some special considerations when caring for female patients? Yeah, I think we don't always take it in as a that factor
2: when we're, we're entering the room. How might my, my approach change a bit in terms of what tests I want to order, how accurate those tests might be in the patient that I'm seeing? I think it all goes back to the first principle being that the female anatomy and physiology is distinct and for a long time most of the body of research was based around large large studies that included male participants and female responses and to treatment and testing were seen as a deviation from the normal the normal being the male and what i've heard a lot of the experts talk about is that we should Think of it differently than that. There is male normal and there's female normal and there are deviations from those. Uh, and we have a lot less research at this point to help with our understanding of what is female normal. And it's a cross-system outside of the bikini medicine that people kind of typically go to when they think of GYN, oh, your preg vag bleeders, your breast abscesses, pregnancy-related conditions. It's much broader than that. It's cardiovascular, it's neurologic, endocrine, obviously, GI. Uh, How does everything play out differently in your female patients? So everything from how drugs are metabolized, toxicology, it really hits
1: every area. So not unlike thinking about the elderly as being a special population in the ED, we should start thinking about female patients as special populations, it sounds like.
2: Yeah, and there are places where they're developing female specific emergency departments with folks who have expertise in these areas and when I first thought of that I thought of it's like a GYN urgent care GYN emergencies because your mind goes the same place where we're used to going but no it really hits hits everything how can we best treat women with strokes how do we best treat women with acute coronary syndromes Um, so it'll be exciting to see how that develops too.
1: That is exciting. I didn't know that. Are they going to have non-slip floors like in the geriatric ed? <laughs> they should. <laughs> <laughs> Getting back on topic, though. Why is it important to be mindful of these special considerations when you're taking care of women? I think it's really about men and women benefiting.
2: So some, especially in the current climate, some people feel that there's this feminist push, let's make it all about the women, but it really comes down to how both populations benefit because we know there's areas where men have a distinct disadvantage there's increased male vulnerability in certain certain conditions and where women have that distinct advantage like in infectious disease and in our response to infectious processes this is really going to help drive new interventions new medications it's affecting our patients in ways that we didn't anticipate and I think the more we dig into why do women have an advantage in this particular disease process it's going to help on the therapeutic end for both and i guess the other very important piece of this is for a while we assumed men and women were were interchangeable like in our approach to coronary artery disease acute coronary syndromes and people died as a result their that's one of the great quotes I heard from Marianne Legato out of Columbia, who was one of the pioneers of gender-specific medicine. You should care because ultimately it affects patient mortality uh, if you're treating patients the same way and assuming that your tests are going to be as accurate for, say, women in acute coronary syndrome as they are in men.
1: That makes sense. So it sounds like when we're talking about gender-conscious practice like you were saying, it's not unlike how we should be more mindful of atypical presentations of MIs in women, and there are other uh, conditions for which that holds true as well.
2: Yes, definitely. I definitely agree with that. I think emergency physicians are really great at questioning the body of knowledge, questioning what we know, how we apply the rules that we've learned, doing the myth-busting, and a lot of that mindset can can be applied in the context of gender specific medicine how good are how good is the non invasive testing for coronary artery disease in women compared to men and this like body of knowledge is starting to explode in terms of what we know young women are misdiagnosed we know with acute coronary syndromes the non invasive testings lower sensitivity has lower specificity because women have less obstructive disease and more diffuse types of disease. They come with more vasovegetative symptoms concurrent with the typical chest pain that you think of. It helps us to think outside the box, outside of those comfortable algorithms that were were taught in medical school about how to approach patients with typical chest pain. And the more you dig into it, it it hits every area. So the area that got me interested was thinking about stroke and subarachnoid hemorrhage and The prevalence of unruptured intracranial aneurysms in women is much higher, especially when you get into women who are over 50. They fare much more poorly when they do have rupture. Um, And why is that? Because the location of the aneurysm is different. At the level of the vasculature... What's happening to cause the aneurysm in the first place and where they're forming really impacts the end result that we see, which is that patient with a head bleed in the emergency department, and how might we think about them differently when hopefully we catch them in that initial sentinel bleed. It hits every system, and it's always been something that's fascinated me, how much we know and how much we still don't understand.
1: That is interesting. So you mentioned you first got involved with this early in your career with a conference. Is there a lot of groups, or are there a lot of groups across the country doing research on this specifically now?
2: It's very institution-specific, so there are a couple very active groups in the Northeast. Columbia's been a pioneer. At Brown, there's actually now a two-year fellowship in gender-specific medicine, so that's been another place that people have sought out where where the experts are, are located. There are a lot of great resources online. There's gender-specific medicine consortium that can lead people to a lot of these resources if it's something that they also find interesting and want to pursue.
1: That's very interesting. Uh, in addition to the physiologic and pathophysiologic differences of women, it sounds like there's some biases that come with treating women. Definitely. I think one of the papers that caught...
2: The attention of our specialty in recent years was the one on abdominal pain and how that's treated differently in men and women in our emergency departments. So it was very clever in how they set up the study because they excluded gender-specific diagnoses to take away that piece of, oh, maybe I'm not giving pain meds because I think the patient's pregnant. They also controlled for age, race, triage class, uh, pain scores, to take out some of those other factors. And they just looked at how long did it take women versus men to get pain medications in abdominal pain, when were opiate versus non-opiate medications given. And there were some really interesting findings. There were significant delays for women getting any kind of pain medication. Women were more likely to get no pain control whatsoever um, and less likely to get opiate medications in acute pain. So that kind of got a lot of the conversation started about what might be at play here. I think as physicians, a lot of research has shown that more educated folks are better able to rationalize their behavior and come up with a whole score of reasons why that applied. But I think we also have to be humble in thinking about some of the implicit bias that might be at play, things that are happening under the surface um, that we're not aware of and how it might affect what the decisions we decide to make when, when we enter a room, when we're talking to a patient, what questions are we asking. On both sides, it's important to consider those factors. And you know things like social factors are important too when you're coming up with a uh, plan for your patient. Another section of the research that's really interesting and burgeoning is what about women with substance use disorders? Um, There's a telescoping phenomenon in female patients that there's a a later age at initiation of use of substances like drugs and alcohol, but very shorter times to dependence, and all of the problems that we know go with that. So I think it's going to impact how we think about the opiate crisis that's currently ongoing. What we've also seen is that some of our systems for intervening in drug and alcohol such as the, the SBIRT, screen, brief intervention, referral to treatment, aren't as effective in women? And, and why is that? Um, so at a year, they looked at SBIRT and saw that that type of an intervention was effective in men and was not as effective in women. So what other factors might be, be at play when you talk about your social determinants of health? What other issues is this patient worried about? Family issues, things related to child care, the means to travel outside of the small area where that patient lives. So many things to think about, both on the personal end, how am I as a physician approaching my patients, and are there biases that are at play that I'm not aware of that are coming into our interaction? And then also to be aware of that, think about how it's potentially affecting care, and then also coming up with a plan that really fits the complicated biopsychosocial model of of the patient and the disease that's in front of you.
1: As you said it it sounds like the whole issue of gender conscious practice is very complicated and there are a lot of factors to take into account. When you walk into a room do you have any tips for how you sort of check your biases at the door to kind of eliminate that factor? Oh, that's a great question.
2: I think med students and other shadowers are great at catching us on our own bias. Because what we know about unconscious bias is that we are not good at recognizing when it's there. There's some really interesting tools that you can use. One that's been very well validated is the implicit association test, uh, which measures your levels of unconscious bias. And it's one one that I took. Uh, And I took the gender, there's many iterations of it that have to do with race, ethnicity, age, but gender as well. So I found that very telling to kind of measure your baseline unconscious bias and it gives you some insight into what they call the societal thumbprint, these messages that we've been sent about certain populations that are just present in our psyche that we can't control and maybe very different from the beliefs that we express when we're directly asked about them. So take an IAT. It's kind of fun. It takes maybe 20 minutes or so, and it gives you an opportunity to reflect outside of when you're working clinically. But I think shadowers, residents you're working with, students, people who force you to to ask questions and who ask questions of you are the best tool for keeping you honest on a shift.
1: (laughs) So mindfulness and maybe having someone watching you. Yes. <laughs> <sounds> like
2: <laughs> Sometimes you need that other person in the room. I do think I'm better, you know, when I'm just more conscious of, of my approach, when I know I have especially a learner who's hopefully going to take some of the things that they're seeing and incorporate it, that into their practice. So I want to be a good model of that behavior.
1: That makes sense. This is interesting. This is such a big population that I didn't know we should be treating specially. Are there any other special populations that we should be mindful of? Certainly. So I think we're just starting to
2: see the science emerge in in lots of areas. Certainly geriatric medicine is another one of the special populations that we are more used to thinking about differently. I think the, the extremes of age and how same with pediatrics, you know, they're, they're not just little adults. I think what's really important on the individual level is kind of knowing your own triggers. What are the potential situations where you are not the best version of yourself, where maybe some of your, your own biases can come out? Maybe it's the alcoholic patients, it's the frequent flyer, it's patients that you put in the basket of minor complaints, shouldn't be here, should be with their primary care provider. I think knowing what potentially triggers you to not provide the best care is is really important. And sometimes it's because of a family experience. They remind you of that crazy relative. And, you know, sometimes it's as simple as you're on your third or fourth overnight and you just don't have as much juice left. But knowing what those potential traps are for you and realizing that it can impact how you approach a patient, the, how good the information you're getting from them is, how you think about applying diagnostics and even you know therapeutics to that patient. What we know in gender-specific medicine is that the effective gender influences, how the patient's gonna to respond to treatment, the performance of diagnostic tests, how the providers behave, and then overall how are people utilizing our emergency departments and the overall healthcare system, who are they presenting to, why and where. So knowing what's happening at the micro level, like individually in the room with the patient's important, and then appreciating what's happening in the forest, what are the the big the big impacts, seeing it from both both of those perspectives.
1: What trends are we seeing as far as females and males utilizing the emergency department or fast track?
2: Yeah, so um, one of the one of the recent papers that looked at changes that came about with Obamacare found that men, when their insurance status changed, would utilize emergency services less across the spectrum, whereas women were utilizing, were less frequently actually utilizing for lower acuity complaints. So it's interesting to think about why that might be. And I don't think we have a full understanding of all the factors that go into that decision making, and especially with the changing climate, there should be more to come in that area.
1: That is interesting. That sounds like something that we should be on the lookout for, just because it'll affect who we see in the ED every day. Definitely. So that was interesting. I have a lot to think about now when I go home, because I never thought about how half the people I see in the ED should be treated a little bit differently than I, than I thought. And uh, I'll try to be more mindful as I go and see special populations in the ED. Awesome. We talked a lot about gender-conscious practice and things that we should consider when we walk into a room when our patient is female, but I know in the literature in medicine, there's a lot about differences between genders of providers, and so I thought we would move into talking a little bit about that. Has there been any research looking at female providers versus male providers and what type of patient care that, that ends up leading to? So there was one
2: interesting pilot study that was talked about at this consensus conference that SAEM had that I was a part of under the trauma group, and it looked at gender behavior differences. How did male and female trauma team members behave during trauma resuscitations? So they showed that women leaders were more likely to perform a, a menial task, something that, say, a PCA or a nurse can do, rather than delegating a team member to assist with that. Uh, Females more often said please and thank you and were apologetic about aggressiveness during emergent and non-emergent resuscitations, whereas males were not. And they looked at the overall, you know, prevalence of what they categorized as aggressive behaviors. So it showed that even if females couldn't see exam results or were in some way hindered from participating, they were less frequently aggressive, whereas the males were more so. They looked at things like nonverbal behavior, including body language. Males were more likely to address the whole space, the team as a unit more frequently than females. So this was uh, a pilot study that just categorized and looked at the behaviors and reported out and you know didn't take it to that next step of, does this potentially affect patient care? But I think some of that might impact patients and how a trauma is being run. And and we don't really know what best practices are yet. You know, we know things like female patients are potentially sort of down triaged with the same severity of injury, they're less likely to be sent to a trauma center from a non trauma center. So there are are levels of bias, certainly within trauma, some that are established. And then when it comes to the interplay between team members, um, we don't yet know how that affects patients. But there are places that are looking at how it might.
1: That's interesting. As a tiny female resident, I have noticed a difference between the way some of my male co residents run a code, for example, versus the way I do it. And so it's interesting that people are starting to look at that.
2: Yeah. Um, and there's sort of stereotypically male and female communication styles. And there have been a lot of studies within the medical and non-medical settings about how team dynamics play out and communication styles impact the results and how women utilize those styles to accomplish a task versus how a man does it differently. So those are things that I find really interesting too, especially because we're teaching residents and, and students the best way to be effective in an emergency department. And I don't know if it's completely defined yet. And just because the default way that we're more used to may be the, the more stereotypically male approach. I don't know if we know that that's the best thing for patients. So it'll be interesting to see how, how this plays out.
1: We talked a little bit about how female providers are perceived in a certain way and tend to have uh, different ways of communicating when they're in charge of a room. Do you now as uh, APD at Temple see any differences in how female residents or medical students are evaluated? The literature we've seen emerging in this area just
2: this past year is really interesting to me as an educator The first paper in JAMA Internal Medicine looked at milestone attainment for emergency medicine residents. It was over 350 EM residents that were followed through their residency. And what it found was that residents started off very similarly in the first year of residency, but through second and third year, there were lower rates of milestone attainment shown with female compared to male residents. And this was whether they were being evaluated by a male or female faculty member. And I don't think and the authors did not think this had anything to do with the difference in qualifications or what was being learned by these residents across the spectrum of their residency. And it had a lot more to do with how we are evaluating them as faculty members. And it didn't matter whether we are male or female faculty members, but the way we assessed resident attainment of these milestones is different because of our messages that we've been given about how Male and females should communicate. I sit on the clinical competency committee for my residency, and I know I've talked to others who do it at at other places, and you always hear the confidence question come up. Uh, the confidence feedback, "Be more confident," is a frequent evaluation that's that's given to females, and I think it's just it's interesting how the gender of the resident who's presenting to us and the style in which they're communicating may impact how we perceive their milestone attainment and how effective of of a physician they're being. And it doesn't matter whether the person evaluating is a male or a female. So there was a second study that actually looked at the types of feedback that, that residents were getting. And it found that men were more likely to be given specific, actionable items to work on, whereas women were more likely to be given global, generalized feedback that was less helpful. So I think that's something we really have to be conscious of as ed- educators that are working with students and residents. Is the quality of the feedback we're giving as good? How can we tailor that to serve them better and help them to become better physicians?
1: Did they look into if it's a problem with the milestones? Are we like judging female residents by different or or should we be judging female residents by different standards have they looked at that yet
2: i don't think it's as much of a question of there should be different standards but is the tool that we're using accurate and and validated are are we measuring the right thing with the milestones i think it's great that we have this framework for looking at, at resident progress but is it a perfect tool no And we need more data to know which sections are most useful and formative for residents and how we can best track progress. And I think we have to take a hard look at ourselves and the way that that we give feedback to those residents to make sure we're doing it in a way that's fair.
1: So we're lucky to have you as one of the AEM board members for this past year. As a woman in leadership, do you feel that there are ways in which your leadership style is perceived as different or any challenges that you've faced along the way?
2: Definitely. I think we're finally moving in the conversation from talking about women in leadership in medicine being a pipeline problem. There's not enough women leaders. We have to start with the students and move them through. We have a critical mass. There are women in our departments who aren't then progressing through, say, looking at it from the the academic level. There's great data that shows that women don't progress from assistant to associate to professor, and why is that? Why um, do we not have as many department chairs that are women? And that's where I get really interested in, in what sort of issues might be at play, everything from your communication style and how that's perceived. One of the Facts that I find sort of disheartening is that when you look at women leaders, as their success goes up, their likability goes down. Whereas men's success and likability are correlated. So as they become more successful, they become more likable. And women as they progress and are promoted and become more successful, likability scores go down. And we could spend a, you know, a whole hour just talking about what does that mean and, and what's playing what's at play there. I always tell young female leaders to own your own strengths and not to feel pushed to use a communication style that doesn't feel authentic to you. You want to be yourself and you want to capitalize on on the unique strengths that you have and that you bring to the table. There are little ways that you can augment what you're doing to be more successful, because we know some of the traps for women. One is apologizing in emails. So take just out of your emails. Take I'm sorry out of your emails, especially in the professional context. There's also this princess phenomenon where you wait for your your crown. Women often do a lot of work behind the scenes and wait for someone to come and say, great job, Jess here's your tiara, you've done an awesome job on this project and are much less likely to self-promote and to, you know, brag about their their own accomplishments. Women don't, don't do as well in those arenas. So I think it's about finding champions, someone who says, hey, did you hear about that great thing that Jess has been doing on the RSA board and pushes that out to the department? you know finding someone beyond just a mentor a champion someone who's going to think of you when a leadership position becomes available when there's an award that is being discussed and i think those are the ways that we as women can really help each other to get to the next level because we know that's what we're good at doing working within within teams and supporting each other so there are great little tricks you can learn to help push your career, give you, you know, more of an edge, and sometimes it's very simple things like the examples that I mentioned, but you always want to stay true to to what your own strengths are and your own communication style. Something that I found very useful coming out of residency, the AAMC has great workshops for young women faculty and then mid-career women faculty that addressed these issues across the spectrum that I found lots of useful tips there. One of my other favorites is the 24-hour rule. So when you are presented with a new opportunity, say, that sounds super exciting. I'd really like to, to think about getting involved with that. Can I have 24 hours to think about it? Because women tend to default into the yes immediately especially if it's someone that you like it's a great mentor who offers you a project and you have to be smart about how you how you use your time so giving yourself that breather period to really think does this fit with what I want to be doing in my career is helpful and no one's ever given me a, a funny look for saying can I have a day to consider this?
1: That's a good tip. I find myself taking on too much sometimes. And then I ask myself, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? So that's a good idea to give myself 24 hours to really think about it.
2: Mm-hmm. And it becomes your default answer and you get used to that response and it just becomes the way you operate and it gives you just that second to think, is this really something I want to take on? Because it's very easy to default into the yes, and then you're stuck. And then you want to do an amazing job on that project, and you can't if your energies are too, too split across different areas.
1: I'm also waiting for my tr that you promised me, and I don't <laughs> understand where it is. I didn't bring it today. <laughs> well, thank you for being here, Dr. Healy. It was wonderful to have you. Great to talk to you. Thanks.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about RSA, please visit our website www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.